At long, long last, after more than five years, Mary Lambert's long-anticipated new album is here. You likely know Mary as the singer and co-writer of Same Love, the Macklemore and Ryan Lewis song. And true to her brand, she says she cried the whole time while making this new album. It's called Grief Creature and has tracks with names like Born Sad and Trauma is a Stalker, Another Rape Poem, and Feel With Me. And, you know, personally, as someone who is just a little emo boy at heart, someone who still listens to Fall Out Boy, I relate to Mary's music on a deep level. So to celebrate the release of her new album, I wanted to bring you this interview that we did at the end of last year when her book of poems came out. That is called Shame is an Ocean I Swim Across. And there are poems that have been turned into songs and vice versa. So I think it reveals some really interesting insights into her new work, as well as just the incredible and unconventional career that she has had. So let's get to it. From Luminary Media, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ and A. Oh my God, okay. <laughs> Thanks for being here, by the way. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this of course. Nice. Thanks. Okay, let's start. Uh, in your book, you were very open and honest about insecurities and mm. traumas you've experienced. Mm. Frankly, a lot more than I expected for a public figure. Yeah. You know, you like name drop incest on the first page. Yeah. <laughs> and I just, I wonder like if it was that your intention to be that revealing and open from the beginning. Yeah, I think, you know, I've never known any other way to be other than like radically vulnerable. And I think I... I, I honestly, it started when I was like nine years old and I, I referenced this concept. Like I, I started referencing this like 10 years ago when I was like, you know, those sleepovers you went to and everybody talks about their trauma. And, and I remember finally someone was like, Mary, I don't have that experience. I don't know if a lot of people have that experience. At nine. Yeah. At nine. So what happened is I, I you know, I experienced pretty severe trauma as a child and I was immediately went into therapy. So I've been going to therapy for like 25 years. And I started thinking, of like, oh, I, I kind of want to be a therapist. Like, I think this is like really beneficial. And I had this idea when I was growing up that I was like, oh my God, I want to be a high functioning, successful person. I have to nip this stuff in the butt because I've heard that, you know, trauma can really keep you from being successful and you could be cyclical and, and trauma. So I started reading case studies about adolescence when I was like nine and like kind of studying how malleable brains are and especially that formative time. And I remember going to the sleepover and I'm sure I was the one that brought it up because I was like, I started immediately talking about like what I had experienced and there was like other I think it was like four or five other girls. And when I did that, when I started talking about it, all of a sudden and everybody was sharing similar experiences where we realized at nine years old that all of us had been violated by men at some point in our childhoods. And the sleepover ended up being just like us crying and hugging each other. And I remember thinking this is powerful. And this started with me being like really vulnerable about this experience and in what ways will this carry over and what ways can I continue this process? So I've just understood the value of being radically vulnerable because it, I think it encourages empathy and that 
empathy carries over into connection. And I think connection is what like encourages us to stay alive and be accountable to each other and care for each other. I'm just kind of blown away that this was a nine-year-old with that realization. <laughs> because I grew up in the South and yeah. all anything you experienced that was traumatic and or even stressful, you just did not talk about. Right. And that's how you process. Right. And it's wild that a nine-year-old was like, oh, no, 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 this is actually how you like begin to heal. Right, right. I don't know how. <laughs> I'm really lucky to have the mom that I did. My mom chose terrible partners, so that was a part of it. But my mom herself is an incredible woman and powerful and she's also a singer-songwriter. So I was watching her spin these like painful, abusive relationships into gold yarn, into gold, like straw, you know, like into these beautiful songs. And that was a, like an immediate display of processing where I saw my mom being vulnerable. And I think that that's, I think that that's what carried over. That's a really powerful example mm. to have in your house. Yeah. And your mom is also bisexual, right? Yes. That that it, I don't think that gay parents raise gay kids, but I think that there has to be some kind of effect of having a parent that's broken with heteronormativity. Mm-hmm. And so like, I just want to know, like, how do you think that affected you? Honestly, I don't... I remember when she started dating women um, that I was immediately like, hell yeah, mom, like do your thing and just proud of her. And I was immediately just outspoken about like gay rights. And and that was especially the peak time of people using like that's gay as a, you know, as a synonym for dumb. And uh, so that I always stood on my soapbox as like a 10 year old, just being like, you shouldn't say that. It's, it's not a derogatory term. I didn't see myself as someone that might eventually be queer I was always trying to kiss my friends. Like, I, was always at this, I got kicked out of a slumber party because I was like trying to kiss a girl. I remember writing in my journal when I was 12 that I said, I need to stop, I need to stop doing this stuff and I'm gonna like boys now. I just had this switch where I was like, okay, this is I'm not gonna be like that. That's not what I see my life as. And then when I was 17, I met a girl and I was like, oh, okay, I get it okay, maybe that's me. But I honestly, I remember coming out to my mom and she was kind of like, oh, honey, you're you're going through a phase. You know, why don't you just wait until college and experiment? You're a queer mother. Yes. And I think she was concerned for my safety because she didn't understand that things were progressing pretty rapidly um, in like the early 2000s. And Also, um, a church was a very important part of your life. A hundred percent, yeah. Sweet mom. Oh my God. But after, after like my first like relationship, she kind of got it. She was like, okay. <laughs> How old were you when she came out? I was six. Oh, that's really young. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's like, that's your whole life more or less. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. My early childhood, we were strict Pentecostal. So I, we went from like not being able to watch most television or listen to anything but gospel, Christian music. And then like the next year, exclusively listening to Melissa Etheridge and Tracy Chapman and going to drum circles. (laughs) So it was like this very drastic shift. Wow. That's amazing too, to that and unique to for yourself to come out of the closet and have a path that you can see to Mm -hmm. follow. Yeah. Most of us are like feeling around the dark. Right. Like, how does this work? And what am I touching? Totally. (laughs) 
Okay, so the next wave of anti-LGBTQ laws are being framed as religious freedom laws. Right. How do you reconcile those two parts of you? Yeah, I think I feel like uniquely qualified to talk to like Christian, the Christian right, because I when my before I came out, I had joined the evangelical church. And so I was like, it was like f- for my first years in high school. And I remember going to this church and I just remember crying so frequently because I was like, my mom's going to hell. And I just have to pray for her that, you know, she's not going to go to hell and that God will have mercy on her. And so that belief system, I understand where people are coming from and that I think it's difficult for other people that weren't raised in that in that atmosphere to have compassion for it because it feels just, it feels so hateful and it doesn't feel compassionate. But I I understand it because I used to feel that way. And I think that documentary, I saw that documentary when I was 17, which uh, For the Bible Tells Me So, which just changed my life. And um, it really gave me perspective on theology and gave me, I think, concrete tools to talk to, you know, my the Christian people in my life that were um, very anti-gay. And, and the ones in your life have like slowly begun to come around, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So what do you, where do you start for people who don't have a gay daughter, niece person to like talk them through it? Right. I guess I just, I, I try to come from it with empathy of like, I understand why you feel this way. And I understand that you just want to save us. But I think I have a unique perspective because I am Christian and I'm like, I'm still, I'm still good with God. This isn't incorrect and this isn't wrong. And if I can go through scripture with them and understand where they're drawing these conclusions, which is often from a pastor, often like a white straight male pastor talking about their own sort of belief systems and projecting, then I can maybe offer a counterpoint of just something to chew on. But I think that the desire for like an instant gratification of switching someone's mindset just doesn't happen. And so it's a slow process and it's a gradual process of just some sort of like little nugget that can stick in someone's brain and they can chew on that for a while. And that process is slow. And so to be patient and kind with people that just don't get it. And I think there's this mantra that I I started living by, which is like, everybody's doing the best they can with the faculties that they have. So understanding that that's just how someone was raised and that's just how someone has drawn to those conclusions. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't hold them accountable. I'm just more personally patient, you know. And I understand that it is scary to have your whole like worldview break. Yeah. And to like question, like, I don't know, like if you question queer couples, like what, where do you stop questioning? Yeah. The th- the, once you start pulling the thread, everything starts unraveling and you're, it can feel like everything's sort of crashing around you. Yeah. And if other things are unstable, like, I don't know, the political system today, it's like, yeah. no, that I'm going to hold on to. Right. Because it's just safer. Yeah. 
What I tell young queer kids that are having a hard time with their parents mm-hmm. is that it took you like 15-ish years to figure out who you are and to come out. And your parents need time too. Right. Hopefully it won't take 15 years, yes. but they need time. Yeah. And I guess that's the exact same thing with these um, really devout Christian people. Right. I think that Christianity has similarities with Islam in that regard, in that we think that every Muslim is a terrorist, even though we know they're not. And we think that every Christian is anti-queer, even though they're not. Right, yeah. It's just easy to like tell those myths. Totally. Like, I don't know like where we go from there, but like we need more examples of people like you, (laughs) you know, (laughs) who are like loving loving God and like super gay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I want to go back to the book. Okay, please. Okay, great. (laughs) You had a line in the book about... Target won't carry your album if mm. you talk about rape. Yeah. Is, is that something that was actually told you? Yeah. So the um, there's a couple poems in there which are they're actual emails that I was sent that I chopped up. So there, um, that was a direct thing that was sent to me. And I, so originally on my first full length, I guess my only full length, Heart on My Sleeve, I had written a poem that's actually in the book called Epidemic. I recorded it and I was really excited to put it out because I felt like this. there's urgency to this. This is important. People need to hear this. And um, it seemed like everybody on my team was also on board and thought it was going to be, you know, radical. And then I got called into um, the office and they had a really frank conversation with me. And I think what happens with labels now is that it's not an overt, like you have to lose 30 pounds. It's much more covert manipulation and to get you to do what they want you to do so you can be of service to the label. Which means Um, making money for them. Exactly. Yeah. So oftentimes I feel like there's this like belief system that labels are just insidious and like just what they do is so like egregiously harmful and they're just, they're, they're doing this because they're evil, but they're doing this because their bottom line is, is to be risk averse and to make money. And and also like with the same way that I was saying, there was like myths about religious people that we just tell and retell. Mm-hmm. They have myths about what will sell and won't sell for music. Exactly. Until someone breaks that. Right. Ugh. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's like, it's about following a formula until the formula stops working. But even when the formula doesn't work, they're like, well, this is the only thing that's worked. So. I mean, same love is a great example of yeah. the formula not work, not right. being a part of that song. Totally. So you, them telling you, you can't include a song that the song wasn't about rape. It was just rape was mentioned. Um, I just want to know like justification wise, like that's a single lyric, right? Um, It was, so it's an epidemic. It does, it does. I do talk about like the actual being violated process. And um, it wasn't that they said I couldn't do it. And that's that's how it's so covert is like, I got told is like, you can put this on the album. When we support you putting this on the album, we want you to talk about whatever you want to talk about. But we just want you to know that none of the major stores will carry it because we'll have to put an explicit sticker on it. And so that's up to you what you want to do. And... I think maybe a better approach would have been, we're going to do everything we can to get this in the store. You know, like I took it off because I was like, well, my, the most important thing to me is that like I retain a wide reach or I I gain this wide reach so that I can reach more people with as all the positive messages that I have. And I can eventually put this out once I pay these sort of dues. But I think 
in the industry when you're constantly being told, like, if you just do this thing first, then you can do what you actually want to do. And I just, I stopped believing in that system about two years in. How long ago was that? That was from like 2014 to 2016. Okay. Yeah. And are you able to sing songs that use like female gender pronouns? Oh, yeah. And I was encouraged to do that too. Like, well, not encouraged, but it was just, they really didn't have a ton of, you know. Red flags. Yeah. There was no like uh, censoring me lyrically, which felt great. Okay. That's good to hear. Yeah. You sang a cover. I don't know if it was on that album, but you have a cover of Jessie's Girl that I love. Yeah. And it's so like lovely and special. And the first time I heard it, like I couldn't get into it mm. just because this is a female's voice singing about like she, her and yeah. Jesse's girl. Yeah. And it was just like staggering to me. Like I had it re- like replayed a couple of times because like I was taken out of it by the queerness yeah. because I think like not a single popular song on the radio that we grew up with had that. No. And we were just trained to think, excuse me, I was trained to think that mm-hmm. you can't do that in music. Yeah. And it's like, it's, it's so overt. And yes. it, um, it scared me. Yeah. Actually. wow that's really cool though I mean I think the like the discomfort is so important to that re like retraining you know of like what do we deem as like like acceptable or what do we feel comfortable with right and because we need to be confronted and feel confronted in order to get over it right in that sense do you feel like when you do songs like that and put them out there that you're in a way like a guinea pig in the sacrifice? I know that it's been done previously, but I did feel that there was a period of time where I was like, I do kind of feel like I'm this, you know, this kind of anomaly. And I remember being in the, you know, the long conference table rooms talking with people. And I remember some executive was like, you know, you'll be the gay Taylor Swift. And I was like, fuck yeah. Like, I was just like, I was on board and I thought it was neat. I thought it was cool. And, uh, I do feel like there have been so many new artists emerging to where it, it is so acceptable now. I mean, it's still, it's still radical. Like it's still amazing that like these artists are using female pronouns or, or, you know, same, same sex pronouns. And, I don't know. It's still it's still revolutionary. Like we're still in the in that period. I we think. are. Yeah. Looking at 2014 when mm-hmm. Same Love came out, that was a song you did with Macklemore and Ryan Lewis. For people right. who don't know, and that was a huge year. And with that song that ended with you performing the Grammys with Madonna. Yeah. And so 2014, looking at the landscape, there was not a lot of out queer musicians with right. big record labels right. behind them, and now that has changed dramatically. Right. It must be really cool to see. Oh, it's amazing. It's I just I just think it, we're we're so lucky to be to be to bear witness to it. Yeah. yeah, it's rad. But I think the one aspect where I felt I guess trailblazy was the music video for "She Keeps Me Warm" because I had this like day where I was like, you know what? I just want to watch like a cute lesbian love story that's like not about someone getting beat up. Like, I just want to, or some weird love triangle. Like, I just, I want to see two cute queer girls, like, falling in love. And so I was like, I'm just going to go through, I'll, I'll search through the internet. And I was like, there's, there's nothing. There's like, there's like girls rolling around in lingerie making out, like, for like, kind of the male gaze. And then there's like, 
people kissing briefly and things, but it, there was never like a Taylor Swift-esque love story in a music video. And I thought, well, okay, I'll make it. And so that's I my true desire was just making like the sweetest video for She Keeps Me Warm. And I was like, well, I have to star in it. Because <laughs> I thought, I was like, you know, it'll also be cool as like a, as a you know, a fat person, having a romantic part is also really encouraging. Yeah. So that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> With gay men's bodies, there's mm-hmm. so many expectations on like fitness, right, right. etc. The You've talked a lot about like a body image. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the pressures that you feel... Is that tied to purely being a woman or do you also feel pressure from as a lesbian? Wow. Honestly, I haven't, I hadn't really thought of it. I guess I do think that there's sort of this, like, it must be a Venn diagram of sadness, (laughs) but I honestly, I hadn't really thought of it. I think that's often just a, something that big people go through in relationships is like desirability and how could anyone possibly think that my body is sexy or attractive when it's just not the social norm. So I think, I think it's a, I think it's universal, honestly. You don't separate out those two. Not, not for me personally. I was just curious. Yeah. With same love, that could have been a song on Macklemore and Ryan Lewis's album that just nobody ever heard. It was right. on the album and like whatever. Right. And you also co-wrote your part on it yes. as well. Yeah. When did you realize that this song that I did with these artists was like blowing the F up? Well, in Seattle, it was big. And so I was like, well, this is going to, this is awesome that it's like blowing up in Seattle. That's incredible. And with that, because of your, you were living there at the time? Yeah. And so it was on, it was on like a ton of radio stations. And I remember being like, oh my God, it's on pop radio. Like that's nuts. Like that's it's about crazy. Gay stuff. <laughs> yeah. But I think it wasn't until I, where I was traveling elsewhere where I was like in Chicago and I heard it on a pop station in Chicago and I thought holy shit. Like this is this is like becoming a phenomenon. Like this is a huge deal. And I also had so much respect for like, you know, Macklemore and Ryan and their team for putting the money into making it a campaign to encourage radio promoters to do it because I think there are a lot of people that took a flyer and kind of took a chance to promote this. And a lot of radio stations got a ton of flack for it. And so I thought it was really bold and encouraging that, you know, the radio industry, which is kind of notoriously scummy, these program directors and music directors made it a priority and said, yeah, we're going to spin this. And it just felt really, it just felt really like revolutionary. That's huge. Yeah. And, and you weren't like famous in Seattle at oh that point, God, right? Oh my God, no. I was playing venues like eight people. I didn't even have an album out. Like I had nothing. Was there a mad rush after that for you to like capitalize on the momentum? I had my own sort of pressure where I was like, this, this is incredible, but this isn't sustainable. I'm a featured artist And what can I do to continue this momentum in a way that feels authentic to me without sort of being completely, I don't know, opportunistic and, um, or like taking advantage of it in a bad way. You know, how can I, how can I stay true to my messaging and authenticity within the industry and grow and create, you know, 
a career outside of this. Of course. Yeah. So with that sudden and unexpected fame, did that compound issues with like mental illness and body image and like bipolar disorder and all these things? A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I'd always contended with being bipolar and I had, I had really newly been on medication at the time when Same Love took off. That was when I really started having uh, pretty severe swings, especially like um, depressive episodes that would just like result in me crying for just like 24 hours. Like I just couldn't stop crying. I couldn't get out of bed. Um, I just have really, really severe anxiety. I started having like panic attacks where I would just kind of black out and I kind of looked seizure-like and the pressure was just really immense and I didn't know how to handle it. And I was also one of those people that was just incessantly checking comments and Twitter and if I was so scared I was going to screw up. And if I did screw up, that it was going to be broadcasted. Um, and so that pressure was so rapid and so new that I just really didn't know how to handle it. And there's no, like, guidebook. There's nothing that, like, tells you how to do something. Or if there is, I didn't read it. <laughs> and There's uh, not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I can confirm. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think um, I, I, that those years were a ton of learning lessons. Because it's juxtaposed against like some of the highest moments of your life. Right. Exactly. So how did you finally, I don't want to say even out, but how did you finally um, gain balance in that? I think leaving the record label was really important for, for, for my mental health. And I think not having formal management was also a part of that. I just don't do well with authority. I just, <laughs> I have to do, I have to do what I want to do. And any time that there's like another person in the room or there's somebody helping me run my direction, I can't help but make myself smaller. And so I realized that I need to start make, making provisions in my career where that there just wasn't an opportunity for me to be small, where I, I, I had to be empowered and I had to be my own advocate so breaking away from the label was a huge deal because the pressure, I realized I started writing songs with the intention of the recipient, with the intention of the listener liking it. And it's a really scary place to write from because you're operating in sort of a creative binary where it's like, this song is either good or bad rather than this song is about my feelings and who the fuck cares about the outcome. And I'm just going to speak my truth. And if it resonates with somebody, then awesome. Like then I, that's so cool. And if not, you can't help it. Exactly. But I just started, I really, it really threw me for a loop creatively. I couldn't write music for a little bit. Are you with a bigger label now? I'm independent still. Wow. I'm independent. I don't have a manager and I just kind of do what I want. And I've never lived such an anxiety free life. I feel incredible. I live in Massachusetts. Like I just kind of do what I want. I was going to say, like, <laughs> you wouldn't think that somebody like you could not 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 live in New York or LA. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I just feel really lucky. Wow. With the fame we were talking about, not only were you famous, but you were famous for something that meant so much to people, right. which I feel like can be scary. Like yeah. someone coming at you like with tears, you know? <laughs> like, listen to my trauma. It was perfect for me. It was like, Oh, absolute, you want the tears. A hundred percent. Because to me, it's, 
I remember just being a little kid, just saying, I want to change the world. I want to do something that's like deeply impactful and healing for the world. So, and I know when I do a show that these aren't just shows, they're, I'm facilitating group therapy and a meet and greet isn't just like taking a photo with me. It's like having somebody tell me their story crying and I get to hold them and I don't take that home at the end of the day. Like everybody has their own agency, but to be a catalyst in someone else's healing or growth or change feels so incredible. And I get to connect with people on a, such a human level that I feel like a lot of artists don't get to do. And that is the main propeller is that connection. Wow. Does that not make it hard to take care of yourself or is it just completely separate? It used to be an issue, especially when I was being marketed a certain way. And I think the label really didn't know what to do with me because I'm like, I'm going to talk about whatever I'm going to talk about. And it's difficult to market someone like me that I sing pop songs and I also want to sing about really, really dark stuff and times where I was suicidal. And I also want to write poems about those things. And I also want to talk about... And you want to read the poems. Exactly. Yeah. Like all of it. I want to do all of it. And it's hard because a label is, you know, marketing minded and they want to figure out how to market you. And so I think they just had a tough time trying to make me digestible and it was a really amicable parting because I said, I'm just not going to be, I'm just not digestible that way. I'm a complicated and complex. My art is complicated and complex. And every aspect that I do doesn't totally make sense to people. And that's okay. But I need to pursue that and feel good about that along the way. But I remember there was a period of time, especially after I released Body Love, which is this poem about body image, And I was very grateful the label funded the music video, which was really cool. And it was sort of a a project of one of the people at the label that I think like was hungry to make a difference, you know? And after that, I was getting like 50 emails a day from fans that were like, I'm in rehab for an eating disorder and I'm listening to this every day and I'm, this is helping me eat again. And that was something where I was so inspired by it and so moved by it. But I also started taking it home where I was like patting myself on the back of like kind of getting the savior complex of like, look at all the good that I do for people. And I think it was around that time that the fanaticism started started with people not really caring about the connection. It was more about the celebrity culture, the consuming the personhood rather than the messaging. And that conflating those two things, it was really uncomfortable for me because the messaging and the healing is, is like my priority. So when the fanaticism of the personhood gets confused, I don't really know how to handle that of like, you, oh, you you just only want to take a selfie do you, and you don't, you're not moved by anything. You know, I just didn't know how to yeah, there's deal no with it. Right. And so I remember, I think the tipping point was I got a tweet from somebody that said, I've been tweeting you for weeks and you haven't responded. Um, so I slit my wrists and then they showed a picture of their slit wrists. And I just, I was devastated for, for like a week. I was just like, I can't do this. I can't take responsibility for this person's actions and what is my duty as this public figure now. And obviously you would never have known if like a tweet back would have like saved this person or not totally from self-harm. But I think what it also does is it encourages other people to know what 
like what I'll be what? motivated by. Yes. And so I ha- you know, you have to be sort of careful about it. And it, is that not incredibly triggering for someone who has a history of like self-abuse? Absolutely. Yeah, it was super triggering. I think what I had to do, and this is sort of where all that started, was mentally in my head, anytime somebody was like, oh, you, you're the reason I came out or you're the reason I'm alive today, I reframe it in my head of saying, you did that yourself. I was a catalyst for your healing. I'm so grateful to be a part of that journey, but it's not, I don't have ownership over that and you have your own agency and I'm excited to be a part of your journey, but I'm going to go home to my life and keep making the stuff that I'm going to make without thinking about the end result and what you do with it. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. I appreciate you talking about mental health and um, you've talked about like a suicide attempt mm. um, just because in the way that the public conversation has transformed around sexual violence recently and that has changed the way we've talked about it and is it's literally changing the world right to, to have those conversations i think the same is true about mental health yeah and suicidal ideation and we haven't yet got there yeah i agree as a public yeah when the me too movement first began i was uh blown away by the number of women mm. uh, and some, some men but mostly women who have had experiences and it sounds like from your experience of your like focus groups as a nine-year-old <laughs> yeah. that you probably weren't as surprised. Is that right? Oh yeah. I've, I've never been surprised. I knew because I've always been like a, a radical oversharer that anytime I said that at least half of the group would say, oh yeah, me too. Like I experienced something like that. So I knew that it was like 50 to 75% of the women in my life had been raped or molested. And you know, I come from like a family of like of trauma. And so we're we're sort of a mutt family where everybody's kind of from everywhere. My, you know, I have siblings that are adopted. I have, you know, siblings that are my siblings that are not, not blood siblings. And I have cousins that are legally adopted. And everybody has experienced something painful. So I've just seen it in my life. So I w- wasn't, it wasn't a surprise, but the community and the rally behind it was encouraging. I see. Regarding that, do you mind reading actually a poem from the book? I would love to. Okay. I just want to read the, um, no, I don't want to read it. I want you to read it. <laughs> um, yeah. How I learned to love. Yeah. How I learned to love. When I was 15, I hated everything except for Weezer and maybe like two people and cereal. One time a boy grabbed me in the music room and kissed my neck in front of everybody. I did not want to be kissed, but I thought I was supposed to want to be kissed. I did not know what to do, and so I laughed. I knew you were supposed to laugh after things like that. The world had taught me to dress up my trauma in short skirts and secret bathroom crying to protect the fragility of boys at all costs. When I was five, my father molested me. You become a strange human that way. You cannot whip yourself awake as a child. I should have been born a bird. When I turned six, I stopped talking. When I was 25 and my name was on the radio, I asked people to write poems and send them to me, maybe because I was starved of honest humanity. Half of the poems were about slit wrists. I do not want to know any more about this brand of humanity. All I know of love is hunger. When I met you, I planted my heart into the heavy earth. I was scared, but you smiled back. Thank God I was not born a bird. 
I love that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Of course. And I wanted you to read that one because I think it it shows the impact of uh, physical touch, mm. actual like molestation, right. as well as something that the public can frame as being more innocuous, like right. a kiss on the neck. Yeah. And that happened at 15 and you're, you're still thinking about it and like yeah. digesting it. Yes. And it reminded me of Christine Blasey Ford because the undercurrents of that conversation that was, were so hard to discuss, but I didn't really hear it discussed that much, mm-hmm. was he didn't actually rape her. Like, why is she still upset about it? Right. Why is she still crying? And it's because it can affect your whole life. Yes. And like, I think the poem like speaks to that. Right. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting that you've been having these like questions privately yes. for so long too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I, I want to assume that you probably are the one who's initiating those conversations amongst <laughs> your friends, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> I love that. You you also discuss in the poem, like you, yeah. you meeting someone. Yeah. And thankfully you weren't born a bird. Yeah. Was it like trial and error when you were finally in healthy relationships to like learn to open up, to like learn how to like be touched and have it be okay? Um, I think honestly... I had never figured out how to have healthy relationships with men sexually or otherwise. And I found, I think when I was 17, I try, I mean, I tried repeatedly up probably until I was like 21 to like, I was like, I'll just try one more time. I'm still and trying then, with men, honestly. <laughs> and then I would get, I, you know, I'd like start making out with a guy and I'd be like, this is awful. <laughs> what am I doing? What's happening? And I think I was so married to this idea of what it was supposed to look like, that I wanted this white picket house and I wanted 2.5 children and I wanted to marry an accountant man. Like, I don't know. I just had this like vision of what my life would be like. And I think the Christian upbringing really encouraged that. So it was hard to let go of the movie that I saw in my head. But with women, it was very easy to, like I just, there was never a moment where I felt oh no, I'm, you know, there, there wasn't really any triggering because it just always felt safe and okay. And also that, I don't know, it was just like, they were tended to be much more empathetic and understanding or have had experienced the same things that I had. And so there was like sort of a tenderness and an understanding that was kind of unspoken. And I think that was sort of the beauty of discovering queer love that young. Um, well, 17. And I think um, that's really young. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> And to be having those experiences too. Yeah, yeah. I think that there is a reductive reading that can happen of uh, child abuse, mm-hmm. where like you were abused and now you're a lesbian. And I, I don't believe that's, uh, of course. Um, and also like the numbers show that there's so many women who are abused, yes. not lesbians. But I just wonder for you personally, like, did you question that at all? Like when you were like coming out? Absolutely. I mean, I thought that was why. I was like, I, oh. I thought, I thought, was like, well, I can explain why I'm gay. And that's, and that was honestly part of the, the process of coming out in the church. I was like, well, God wants me to be happy and like love someone. And because of the trauma I've experienced, I can't have a healthy relationship with a man. So I think God would be okay with me being with women. And that was just sort of how I operated. It was that it was, it was, purely environmental for me. And then a couple years later, I was like, I don't know if it is. I think maybe I, I was born this way. And then I thought, who the fuck cares? Like, I don't care. I And I think honestly, that was the, 
that was the impetus for the chorus of same love is like, I can't change even if I tried, even if I wanted to, I just kind of abandoned questioning it altogether because I don't care. But there was a period of time where I was like, I was like, I need to know why, you know? And I think everybody's like always trying to figure out their root or why, you know, why it happened. And, and I think like the truth is that it's like nature and nurture. Yeah, you yeah, know? absolutely. And I believe the same is true for mental illness, honestly. Not to draw that parallel, God damn it, I shouldn't have drawn that parallel. <laughs> but I just think, I think that people have genetic predispositions that are encouraged through their environments. And so that's how some things express themselves. I agree. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. All right, that was Mary Lambert. Her new album is called Grief Creature and will be available next week. And speaking of next week, we'll be back with a really special interview with Robin Crawford. Robin is Whitney Houston's best friend and long-rumored girlfriend. And for the first time ever, Robin is talking about the exact nature of their relationship. So I'm really excited for you to hear that one. That will be next week. And then until then, come find me on Twitter. Let me know who else you want to hear from. I tweet from at JeffMasters1, and I cannot wait to hear from you. We are brought to you by Luminary Media, Neon Hum Media, and The Advocate. The Advocate magazine is the world's leading LGBTQ news source. Come check out our website if you've not yet. That's advocate.com. LGBTQ&A is produced by Jonathan Hirsch, Zach Stafford, John Asante, Jordan Gosprey, and myself with sound engineering by Mark Bush. We'll see you next week. 